0: So, we're in the season, the season of Easter. We call it Easter Tide or Easter Time. This is the 50 days between Easter and Pentecost. Pentecost being that day when the church, a lot of people say the church was born. The spirit fell there in Acts 2. A 50-day space that the church for, I, I suppose since we really settled the calendar 15, 1600 years ago, it's a space of eight Sundays. So, the first Sunday of Easter time is Easter, and then you have six little Easters, and then you have finally the eighth Sunday of this season, and that's Pentecost Sunday when we celebrate the fall of the Spirit. This is a season, obviously, those 50 days, Paul said, after Christ arose on that Sunday, that first Sunday, he was seen. We talked about that last week. I think it's really really interesting that in Paul's description of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 you remember we talked about this so I don't want to be too redundant but Paul said the gospel is that Christ died was buried resurrected and was seen so it's not it's not a tripart gospel it's it's quartered death burial resurrection and he was seen and we can gloss over the seeing if we're not careful except that Paul used what was it, 10 words to describe the death, four words to describe the burial, 11 words to describe uh, the resurrection, and 66 words to describe the seeing. So, six times as many words for the seeing as the resurrection itself. And of course, all of these parts are intertwined. But he went on and he said, I think with some emotion and pathos and meaning here, he said, Christ was seen by Peter. He was seen by the 12. He was seen by 500 people in a group event. He was seen by all of the apostles. And then he said, he was seen by me, one born out of season. After that 50-day window on a road to Damascus, I saw him. And so, we've been talking about Easter, This season of Easter as a time of seeing. And if we look to the seeing of Peter, the 12, the 500, it wasn't just talking about, you know, ocular spotting, visually recognizing an image, but getting down to that deeper prophetic idea of what it means to really see. This was a time when Peter, who really hadn't seen him, saw him. This was a time, and you could say it this way, when, when the disciples who hadn't gotten him at all, because when he talked about going to Jerusalem to die, the Bible says they rebuked him. They contradicted him, disagreed with him. When he asked them, who do men say that I am? They said they say you're Elias, John the Baptist. Jesus in Matthew 16 there at Caesarea Philippi said, "Who do you say that I am?" And they all sat there silently. It was a two-part test, and everybody knows if you get one out of two answers, you did just good enough to fail. And the first question was, "Who do people say that I am? What do men say about me?" And they knew that answer. And then finally Simon Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And Jesus said, You've well said. And just about the time Simon Peter feels good about himself, the very next statement Jesus said, and I must needs go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And the Bible says Peter literally took him aside and rebuked him. And Jesus looked at him and said, Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> Easter post-resurrection was a time when those who had seen him without seeing him finally saw him. Maybe the hand motions. They had seen him without seeing him, and they finally saw him. And, and there, almost every example in this season, scripturally, is that idea of, you know, Mary at the feet of Jesus, seeing him and believing he's a gardener. And then hearing that voice say, Mary, and her response of Rabboni and the peace that flooded her. Even in the post-resurrection scene, when the first person to encounter the risen Christ encountered him, she encountered him as a gardener. That's about seeing, isn't it? Of course, there was an image in front of her, but she saw with faith. She saw a gardener. And then Jesus dropped that hint with his voice, Mary. Oh, could you imagine that feeling when her eyes opened? Not her eyes opened. When her eyes opened, Rabboni, seeing Thomas says, I know That you say you saw him, but I haven't seen him. I need to see the prince and the wound. And eight days later, Jesus appears to Thomas. And even in proximity with him physically, seeing him, Thomas was still undone. And then Jesus, and Thomas sees. And he puts his finger into the print, drops to his knees, my Lord and my God. That's the kind of seeing that this season is about. And again, the way the Christian church is called to observe scripture is not called to historically recognize an event that we honor, but we're called into that event. So Eastertide is not something that happened 2,000 years ago in one 50-day window. It's a continual process for us. And so this is a season of resurrection, it's a season of renewal, it's a season of reform, it's a, re- a season of reconstituting, um, reconstructing, all of the other rewords. We picked one of them, reframe, to title this series. This is a series of reframing God, life, Jesus. This is a series to focus on, on the reality that we don't just do that once a year, but that really is a continual process. From our earliest days, Grace Point, that started in a living room 13 years ago next month. We have had a basic understanding of spirituality, of the human journey, the human journey of becoming fully alive, which I think is what spirituality is. Our understanding of what it means to be a human being and to be fully alive and as C.S. Lewis said, we don't have a soul, we are a soul. And to live into that soulishness that we are is that life, part of life or at least a partial description of life is that life happens to us in in a continual seasonal cyclical rhythmic manner. Life is not perfectly linear, and we don't, we don't graduate nearly as much as we think we do. We don't accomplish nearly as much as we think we do. We don't have as much tenor, maybe, to speak professorial language as maybe, or the academy's language. We don't have as much tenor as maybe we thought we had. But we live in a continuous cycle that the sages of old called the Paschal Cycle. And this is the gospel, Paschal, coming from the Hebrew word for Passover lamb. The Paschal cycle is focusing on the passion of Jesus. And the passion of Jesus, remember, was he was born. There was a life. There was dying. There was death. And the dying was different from the death. It was, as Beekner said, a long day's dying. The dying, perhaps, was worse than the death. But birth and life... And the gospels are careful, not as much as the Gospel of Thomas that some receive and some don't receive, but the Gospels were at least careful to put what Paul didn't put. The Gospels were written years after Paul wrote his letters, and Paul never said anything about nativities and virgin births and wise men from afar, but 20 more years of reflection for the church. And we said, you know, we don't only need to talk about what Paul talked about, the dying and the death and the burial. Let's go back. There was something in that birth. He predates even the birth. John's was the latest gospel and John looked at the other writers and said, you guys still haven't captured it with the nativity because in the beginning wasn't Bethlehem, in the beginning was God and Jesus was with God and Jesus was God and the plan, the logos. I mean, there was, there's always been this theological reflection about the gospel and I think if, if John reflecting on the gospel was that disparate from Paul, After 40 years, I I can only imagine what 2,000 years has done to us as we reflect on the gospel. Good Lord, that's all progressives are asking for. Don't take that away from the church. Don't make us fix everything. Every good thing was done by the end of the first century. That's not true in botany. It's not true in economics. That's not true in any other facet of life. Why would we think spirituality and Jesus and everything about God was settled 2,000 years ago? This gospel is too big for one generation to figure out. We are not figuring it out better than the ones before us. We are figuring it out faithfully with them on the shoulders of everything they've accumulated. Surely it's unfolding more beautifully. All all the time our understanding is that this is a paschal cycle of of pre-existence of soul that was Jesus nativities childhoods Luke's gospel said I, I even want to tell you about when he was 12 carpenter shops living Dying, wrestling, death, burial, resurrection. And I wish it was as simple as the first third of life is for living and then there's a stage of crisis where you die and then the last stage, the last large trimester of life is where you live a fully resurrected life and you've got it all together. But that's not true. It's not that linear and clean. But some of the people who speak into my life, some of the people now in their 60s and 70s and 80s, there's a child likeness. I can, I can tell you, in youth and middle age, we battle childishness. But childishness and childlikeness are two different things. And... The early years and even the middle years are this growing out of childishness. And the interesting thing is you don't grow out of childishness into some robust adult maturity. Uh, The robust adult maturity is to recapture naivete and what's called a second naivete and to replace childishness with childlikeness, Because there was something very beautiful in us when we were five. Oh, there were dangerous things and things that were untoward. But Jesus did say, except you become as a little child. And his life teased out for us this tension between childishness and childlikeness. And what we've been saying here for years is that there is no graduation, there is no tenure. That we are living in a constant cycle. And just about the time you've experienced resurrection and new birth and Pentecost, and you have a season of that, and there are, seasons of resurre- there are seasons of dying that are longer than any of us want them to be. I wish I could tell you the season of dying is this long and the season of living, but there are, there are seasons that last for years. And sometimes we're conflicted because there's parts of our life that feel like they're in the dying and there are other parts of our life that feel like they're in the Pentecost and there are other parts of our life that feel like they're in infancy. It's more complex than even, you know, categorizing one life, one way. Our life is... Many things. You might be on top of the world vocationally and relationally at home. Your world's falling apart. You, you may have the best, you may be like C.S. Lewis and Joy. They met and finally had love and relationship and she gets cancer. Life is this strange admixture of good and bad. And Jesus said the wheat and tare furling grow together in such a way that about the time you start trying to pull the tares out, you realize their roots are intertwined with the good stuff. And you almost do damage to the good stuff by trying to pull the bad stuff out. And you finally get out of your dualistic thinking and say, maybe I'm not the one, Jason, to judge what's good and bad. Maybe it's all things work together. Grace Points had a basic understanding of spirituality and the human journey, that it happens in a rhythm, it happens in seasons, it happens in cycles. If you're in a season of resurrection and Pentecost and full aliveness and clarity and the risen Christ and God and life makes all the sense in the world and that season's lasted seven years, it doesn't mean that there isn't a season of dying coming somewhere. It doesn't mean that there's not other parts of your life that are still to be transformed and transformation always includes dying. Well, with that said, This church early on recognized that there was what we considered to be in our own lives, in our own community, and maybe in the church writ large, and you always teeter on the verge of presumptuousness to think that you have anything to add to others or anything to add to something as large and robust as Christianity or even religion or human spirituality. But I got to tell you, in the beginning, there was a group of us looking at, the own, at our own deficits saying, I think this is not only indicative of us, I think it's indicative of the church, again, writ large. And that is, the church has not been the best at allowing questions, struggle, um, the dark night of the soul. Uh, we have not. In our rush for orthodoxy, in our desperation to be right and to believe right, because somehow early on, belief and faith got tangled up with ideology and actually having mental assent about ideas, and our eternal destiny, whether we were going to burn forever or live in an eternal paradise, depended on if we believed right. So a ton of energy got absorbed by us on believing right. And then when you finally did believe right, which generally meant, you know, giving in to what the authorities figures told you because you knew they had to know more than you do, the accumulated wisdom of 2,000 years, so you, you just believe. And, and any assault on that belief, be it external or internal, I mean... Facebook is proof of this, politics is proof of this. Any assault on my beliefs, if it's external, then there's this vociferous, voracious response where I fight and go to arms. And Shakespeare's right, thou dost protest too much because the indication of that kind of severe reaction is something, there's an insecurity inside. And that's true because the assault from the outside is only angering us because it mirrors the assault from the inside. And the assault from the inside has already scared us to death and we can't bear the possibility that it might be corroborated by something from the outside. Thou dost protest too much. As my friend said, I can tell what theological issues you're wrestling with just by your preaching. I said, how? He said, because you get really loud on those. (laughs) And you do too, right? Don't we? So we recognized that early on, and we began trying to build a framework. And I didn't know how to build a framework. The only, not only was my mother tongue, scripture and Christianity, but my lingua franca, my primary language. And really, I was monolanguage, I was not bilingual. My only language for spirituality was Christianity. And I don't, I, looking back on that I don't feel terribly cheated because Christianity has provided for me a language to do a very healthy spirituality within and I used for me and those earliest with me I used scripture to build a case for this idea that not only are questions and struggle and the dark night of the soul a tolerable allowable. I mean, Clint was me. Clint and Rachel were with us from the beginning. Clint's been on staff. It's about all we talked about for the first five to 10 years. We talked about it when we didn't even know how to talk about it in the congregation. But we knew coming from evangelical backgrounds, Orthodox backgrounds, that a part of what had been real in our faith was that questions were not bad. The dark night of the soul was not bad. Dying was not necessarily bad. Struggle and doubt were not the opposite of faith, but really they were a part of faith. And as we begin to sort through that, we begin to find a biblical model for that. We begin to find, you know, a guy coming to the religious institution, the disciples, and saying, my son is sick, can you help him? And the disciples said, well, yeah, we can help him. And they tried to help the boy, and they didn't accomplish anything, so they did what good religious institutions did. They accepted none of the blame. They looked at the guy and said, you must not have enough faith. Can you imagine living with a sick child who's terminal, going to a place for help, and they can't help you, and and instead of just saying, sorry, we couldn't help you, they not only can't help you, but they make it your fault as if living with a terminal child isn't enough. And now I've got to bear the blame that I didn't have enough faith for my child to be healed. Do you know how many millions of people have gone through that in the Christian church? Jesus comes down the mountain. You know where he had been? He had been on the Transfigurative Mountain with Peter, James, and John, and oh yeah, Elijah and Moses where all of us want to be but what a picture Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration and we're down here with our terminal child getting blamed for it by the church and we just saw all of these models and said this isn't just abstract stories we feel this and we were lovers of the Christian church and still are I'm still believing that everything that the church needs the repair is built into our system and as I looked in Scripture, I saw all these stories. Jesus comes down the mountain. He says, what's going on? And the guy says, my son's dying, and the guys can't help me. And Jesus says, well, you do, believe, do you believe? And the guy's like, oh, you, know, you want to cuss and say, I've already gone through that with them. No, yes, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus says, good. That's enough for me. And the disciples are like, really? The guy's like, really? Jesus, yeah, I Because to say I don't believe is part of belief. If belief were 100%, Roy, it wouldn't be belief, it would be certainty. And in a world as vast as ours, with God as invisible as God is, and inaudible sometime, and I defer to all of those who see God all the time and hear God all the time, that has not been my 48 years. I understand. I believe. Help my unbelief. And so we begin to build this process. And 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 I started reading, and I and I saw all of these models. Richard Rohr says that life really goes through a process of you build your castle. Anybody built a castle? Alan, you built a castle? No, <laughs> none of us have built a castle. We have all built a castle. You build your castle, and then you know what happens? Life deconstruct your castle. The castle gets torn down, Roar says. And, and, and then, Steve, he tells us that we're sitting there in the destruction of our castle that we spent the first third or half of life building, and now it's destroyed. And you either go one of two ways, the way of the wise or the way of the fool. And most of us try the way of the fool because it's the way we're trained. And the way of the fool is to get Humpty Dumpty back together again. And to rebuild the castle, right? we got to get our castle built back together again. And, but he said the way of the That's the way of the fool. The way of the wise is to sort through the rubble and find the stuff of home and rebuild a humble cottage for you and God to live in together. And then you live in this peaceful cottage with God. And then I I, I was reading at the same time, Walter Brueggemann, who pointed out that the Psalms could be easily divided into three categories. He called them categories of naive orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. Brueggemann said, some of the psalms come from David's earliest life. King was on the throne. Righteous people prospered. Bad people were punished. One stone could knock a guy named Goliath down. Lions and bears were killed on behalf of the sheep, and the world was right. Brueggemann said, Those psalms come from the earliest days of David's life. It was a received, naive orientation to the world. Things just always work out. But then David goes on the run. I mean, Samuel comes to him, pours oil over his head, and after pouring oil over his head, says, you're the next king. And David's like, okay, great. He makes his way to Jerusalem. Saul says, I don't know who told you that. And David goes on the run for 20 years. And in those years on the run, Saul whom he loved is trying to kill him. David literally spares Saul's life on a couple of occasions. Saul with no gratitude gets up and still tries to kill him and David's running. And there's a whole bevy of psalms written and these are psalms of disorientation. And then there are these psalms that come from the other side of the altar after David has buried three children, committed grievous sin, adultery and murder, and been indicted, after his world has imploded and the castle has crumbled, David writes another set of psalms. Where could I go? I mean, do you know how different? Where could I go and you not be there? If I make my bed in hell, you're with me. Do you know how different that is from Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One psalm screams, where are you and how could you? And the other psalm smiles with lines creased not only in the face, but in the soul. If I take wings and fly into the universe, I cannot get away from you. Psalms of orientation. You can follow that. I always give the example of Psalm 21, 22, and 23. It's one ideal place that the three Psalms are juxtaposed together. If you don't know this rhythm, if you don't know the Paschal cycle, you read it and think that the editors, the redactors were schizophrenic. And why would they put it together this way? Because Psalm 21, there is a young Pollyannic kid saying the world is right. Psalm 22 is my God. My God, why have you forsaken me? And Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And Psalm 23 includes Psalm 21 and 22. Because Psalm 23 has the naivete and the beauty of green pastures and still waters but it also has psalm 22 and valleys of the shadow of death and oh there's the psalm 21 of thou preparest a table before me but there's the psalm 22 in the presence of my enemies and it merges into this beautiful reorientation of psalm 23 it's a second naivete and, and then on the psycholo- in the psychological sciences there's first naivete And then there's cynicism, and that biting thing that can happen to you if you're not careful, when you just know too much, and you get too smart, and it's not working, and you don't trust anybody. And if you're not careful, and if you get stuck in the dying, you'll end up an old, cynical person who dies mad at everybody. It's always striking to me when you meet that gray-haired person that looks tenderized by life, and at 90 years, opens their mouth, and in their eighth, and ninth, and tenth decades open their mouth, and there's biting and ugliness. It's like, wow, what happened? You didn't get through the dying, the the Gethsemane. But if you can manage your way through the first naivete and through the pain of the cynicism, there is a second naivete that comes. That's why a wise person once said, the young young person in first naivete, the young person who doesn't weep is a fool. Because there's plenty to weep about. But the old person who doesn't laugh, they're a fool. Let me get that right. The young person who doesn't weep Stronger than that, the young person who doesn't weep, the young person who can get so lost in their own castle that they can't see 10,000 children starving to death every day, the person who can't get outside of the myopia of their own naivete and Pollyannic world, their own Psalm 21, the young person who doesn't weep, who can't get involved in social action, who can't get outside of the one, the young person who doesn't meet the tears of things in the world, they're a barbarian. Steve, the old man who doesn't laugh is a fool. Because moving through the cynicism is recapturing the laughter. It's coming back to the naivete, but it's a second naivete. It's not a childish naivete. It's a childlike naivete. It's the ability to capture the Psalm 21 of your kindergarten view of the world with a mixture of the reality of things and still believe with Julian that all manner of things shall be well. That somehow the young man could look and say the moral arc of the universe in spite spite of what was happening in Selma and Birmingham and Montgomery and Chicago, he would stern his chin and say the moral arc of the universe bends toward justice. I will not get lost in the cynicism so whether it's castles, or first naivetes, or Brueggemann's disorientation. We even, we even looked and we found this passage, and this is where I'd probably just kind of land and close, and we'll move into it more next week, but we even found this passage that I've talked about several times, but I saw something new in it this week. I thought I exhausted this thing, and I saw something new this week that I wanted to share with you, and this is the, this is the gist. I tell the story that probably eight or nine Easter's ago, I was trying to do an Easter message and I noticed that there were a lot of Marys and I was confused about the Marys and so you've heard that. So I diagram the Marys and it strikes me that this woman named Mary, who's the sister of Martha and Lazarus, is only mentioned three times in scripture and yet it's very pivotal mentions. The first mention of this Mary, she's at the feet of Jesus in Luke 10 And the Bible literally says he is teaching and she gets at the feet of Jesus and she's listening to him teach. Her sister comes out of the kitchen and says, why is she doing this? I'm trying to get the meal prepared. And she looks at Jesus and says, Lord, would you tell her to get up and quit wasting her time and get in here in the kitchen and help me? And Jesus looked at Martha, the older sister, and said, leave her alone. She's doing the needful thing. So she's at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus defends that in spite of public pressure. Okay, skip to the third time. You remember the third time was John 12, and it's a few days before Jesus is going to be crucified. And in John 12, Jesus had just healed Lazarus, raised him from the dead. He is about to be crucified, and he's at the home of Simon, which we think very well may have been Lazarus, Mary, and Martha's house, but that's outside the scope of this conversation. He's at the home. Lazarus, the Bible says, is sitting at the table. The disciples are sitting at the table, and Mary goes and gets a big vat of perfume, oilish perfume, and she brings it in, and while they're just in this normal meal, she gets down to his feet and begins washing his feet with this oil. Immediately, the disciples look at her and say, Lord, she shouldn't be doing this. This poor gal cannot get to the feet of Jesus without somebody complaining. Literally, it's a consistent story. And when we were first seeing this stuff, Glenn, it doesn't sound as big now, but back then it was like, it was a relief. This is us. This is our story. And she's at the feet of Jesus And she's worshiping him. And the disciples say, she shouldn't be doing that. Lord, make her stop. And Jesus, again, says, leave her alone. And as a matter of fact, he says, wherever the gospel's preached, preach this as a memorial unto her. I wonder how much we preach the full gospel because Jesus said, when the gospel's preached, tell this story. And you have to wonder if it'd been a man, if it would have made it into the gospel better. So you got that... But then there's this middle ground, and this is what came alive to us. There was a second time she's in the story, and it's three weeks before she's at the feet of Jesus worshiping, and about six months after she's at the feet of Jesus learning. And that is when her brother Lazarus was dying, and they said, what are we going to do? He's almost dead. And Mary says, I know. Well, of course she knew, because she had just been at the feet of Jesus learning, right? And when you're at the feet of Jesus learning, Jesus is so clear, you get it, and it makes sense. And you know exactly what he said, right? This is easy stuff. She says, I know. I wasn't in the kitchen. I was in the Sunday school class. I read the book. Go get him. He will come and heal our brother. Servant runs, asks Jesus to come. Jesus is over in Perea on the other side of the Jordan River. Jesus says, I'm not coming. The servant says, you're kidding me. Mary said you loved him. This has nothing to do with love. But I'm not coming. Servant comes back. Mary says, where's Jesus? Servant said, he's not coming. Mary must have thought, well, okay. He just said, you do it. Sent the word, and maybe he can heal from afar. Right? And the servant said, he didn't say anything. And she sat there and watched without hospice, Analgesics, anesthetics, opiums, without no help, she watched a brother for the next couple of days die. While Jesus is sitting on his duff somewhere on the other side of the river. And four days later, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you know, I think I'm gonna go see Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And they said, Lord, he's already dead. And Jesus said, I know, and I'm glad for your sake I wasn't there. What? What the? What about for his sake? This stuff of existential import, this stuff of an invisible God and a universe as large as this and a soul as complex as mine, to think that you can sit at the feet of Jesus one or two sessions or read one book, what a tragedy. What a mistake we've made. To call to think that we could ever, in the first few hundreds of the years, fix an orthodoxy from what we got at the feet of Jesus. Gets up, goes, and as he's coming into town, one of the servants spots him, runs into the house. You can't believe who's coming. And Martha says, who? And the servant says, Jesus. And the Bible says the older sister, she's lost her brother, but she didn't have a screwed-up theology that she had to reconcile and get disappointed about. Expectations create disappointments, especially false ones, misunderstandings. Martha goes out. She's like, Lord, our brother's dead, and Jesus has this rich theological conversation with her that's put into his mouth by the late Christian church in the first century because they had a lot of theological issues with why Jesus hadn't come yet and people were dying. So this story was remembered and told for that reason. And Martha gets all of that, and that's great. And that's all anybody ever talked about. It's called realized eschatology, and it's set over and against Mark's eschatology. And it's not the point. The point's not Martha. The point is Jesus looks at Martha after having this big conversation. He says, where's Mary? And she says, she's in the house. And Jesus said, did she not want to see me? The Bible says when Martha went out to meet him, Mary sat down and didn't go out. She did everything but flip him off. He sat down on me. I'm going to sit down on him. Martha comes back into the house, and this is what I want to leave you with, and it builds to next week. Martha comes back into the house. This is what I had never seen before. What I had seen was Martha comes in and says, Mary, Jesus wants to see you. That's what I always said, because I thought that's what Scripture said, and it almost does. Jesus wants to see you. And Mary begrudgingly goes out, and when she gets to Jesus, the Bible said she fell at His feet. So that's uncanny. She's in Scripture three times, all three times explicitly, she's at the feet of Jesus. The first time is what we call Christian education. The third time is what we call Christian worship. And we've created industries on both of those. And our churches are built with worship, sanctuaries, and educational spaces. You think we haven't built a place for worshiping Jesus in alabaster boxes and learning from Jesus in Sunday school classes. We got books, we got whole industries built on those. But another part of the gospel is there was space at the feet of Jesus she fell down, and he was silent. And in his presence, she looked at him and said, where were you? How could you? If you would have done what you said you would do, our brother would be alive. That space, I was taught my whole Christian life was called backsliding, apostasy, and reprobation. If you even remotely thought, how could you, God? The only thing you heard was, how dare you, stand? Who do you think you are? But that's not what Jesus did at all. He didn't even engage her with the Martha conversation of deep theology. He looked down, picked her up in the middle of her questions, held her in her anger, and said, where is he? And she looked through bitter tears and thought to herself, why do you even care? Don't put any flowers now. And they go out to the tomb And I can see her as she gets to the tomb. She says, there, there. And the Bible said Jesus responds as the face of God and he shuts his mouth and he opens his tear ducts and he just weeps. Jesus wept and the shortest verse in the Bible is packed with the most meaning. And as he weeps, she weeps and without a word their tears mingle and her heart begins to heal and then he raises Lazarus from the dead and that Ballyhoo story gets all of the attention and we miss the real healing in John 11 Oof, it's been an adventure and missing the point point. and so we just decided early on Clint, myself and just a few others, we decided early on, whatever we do, we are gonna make sure somewhere in between worship and learning, we're gonna give people a space to be as human as they need to be and ask whatever they need to ask and be honest. Because we think there's acreage at the feet of Jesus for that kind of thing. This is not a mea culpa, but it's an admission and it's not been a mistake I think that has been very right, but here's what I want to say to you about that for us in this season of reframing. We provided a a place for deconstruction and questions so large that I just want to warn against the temptation to think that that's the end result. This season of resurrection is not called deframing, it's called reframing and I have watched some of us find an identity in being deconstructed cynical, disoriented and as Emily Dickinson said if you're not careful the wound can grow so large until your whole life falls into it And I just want to say that this will forever be a place, as long as I get to be a part of it and the leaders that I know that are here are a part of it, this will forever be a safe place for deconstructing people. But I also want you to know that the point of deconstruction, Shelley, for all of us is that we can open our hearts again and say, okay, I don't want the rest of my life to be a reaction to fundamentalism. I don't want the rest of my life to be, this is what I believe about God. This is what I don't believe about God. I don't want to live the rest of my life saying that my deepest convictions are what I don't believe. And that's what I wanted to say. I saw it this week. Clint, when Martha came into the house, I've been quoting her for years, she said, Mary, Jesus wants to see you. It's not what she said. She said, Mary... And like a good doctor, she went right to the pain in a tender way. She said, Mary, the teacher wants to see you. It wasn't just a Jesus, Rob, who makes an idol out of deconstructing. And we don't need to become a bunch of dark artists who sit around and cut the ear of our soul off to feel something. When he comes back, the one who taught you on the flannel graph, the only difference is he's not trying to get you to deconstruct for the point of deconstruct. He's deconstructing the flannel graph because the flannel graph can never capture what real flesh captures. And deconstructing is moving from the flannel graph and the book into the funeral and the intensive care and the divorce and the bankruptcy. But the good news is, Martha said, he's still the teacher and he's gonna teach you. And in the reconstructing, there is a faith that can come so vibrant that the next time we see Mary in scripture, she's looking at Jesus and she's not cutting off her ear and saying, I just don't know, it's all a mystery. I'm just gonna embrace the deconstruction and be disoriented the rest of my life. Don't develop an identity there. Don't live the life of a cynic. Find what you do believe. Find what does vivify your soul. And when you do, I think there's still a place for what we call worship. And in her healing, she drops to her knees and she washes his feet. And I would be a really bad leader in this place if I didn't clarify that deconstruction is not the end. As Pam often says, one of our elders, it's to dance again. And for some of you, like the Israelites who hung your harp on the willow tree and you hadn't been able to sing in years, stick with him. Stick with the deconstruction because the teacher comes into the midst of it. And there is healing there. And you can believe again and you can sing again. Can you say amen? Amen. I want to close the service today with a word. And to give this very positive word. This incredibly pivotal and important word. And I'm saying all of that because this church has been through a lot in the last couple of years. Uh, I am so happy to be here. This church has pastored me for the last year and it has been humbling and it has been life-giving. And I thank you. This is a wonderful church. I'm a testimony to this church.